if you can remember a point as a child, or maybe you are a child and you are living this out now, um, but a point as a child when you were asked to do something that you didn't want to do. Perhaps it was mowing the lawn, washing the car. Anyone mow the lawn as a child? Just me? Okay. You you all had it easy? No, I'm joking. Um, But you were asked to do this thing, this perfectly reasonable task, and you didn't want to do it because maybe it was hot outside or you had better things to do. It interrupted the way your life was going at that point in time. You had other plans. But your parent came along and said, Matt, mow the, mow the lawn. Now, obviously, like any kid, you, you, don't, you don't give up the fight quite that easily, do you? And in this situation, what do you do? Oh, well, you see, um, I, I would, I would, Mum, but actually, um, I don't know where the mower is. Um, or I don't know how the mower works. But you have a sense that actually mum is boxing you in. That ultimately, this isn't going to work. But you try anyway, very valiantly. I don't, know, I don't know how the mower works. And you're told it's okay, I'll show you. I don't know where it is. Ah, well, that's all right, says mum, because I've already got it out and plugged it in. You try a few other excuses. Oh, it's hot, mum, you don't want me to get heat stroke. There'll be lots of kids trying that one this weekend. But ultimately, you eventually run out of excuses. You have no other way of stopping yourself from doing this. So at that point, what do you do? Well, you don't actually give up yet, do you? You've got no more excuses, but you go with the old, oh, mum, please don't make me do this. Please don't. I just really don't want to do it. Please can my brother do it. That didn't work for me. I was an only child. It's a very poor excuse. But... You know, please send somebody else. That last quote came from Moses. And actually the message that we're going to, re- going to have this evening, the passage we're going to read, is actually, it begins with an encounter like that. Now, I'm told you're going through Exodus, so you've looked at Exodus chapter 3 already. And so you know part of this, uh, at this point, you, you know that he's, already tried a couple of those excuses but this afternoon or this evening rather this evening we're going to look at some of those other excuses and we're going to look at that please send somebody else moment and we're going to learn from it but we're also going to learn from the symbols that we see in this passage the signs that we see in this passage and also as we come to the end of a quite a long passage we're going to have an example we're going to have a warning and we're going to have an encouragement But let's just read the passage together. So Moses Moses at this point has been told that actually God's going to deliver his people from Egypt. And it it finishes with God saying, you're actually going to plunder the Egyptians. You're going to come out of Egypt so richly blessed. But that's not enough for Moses. You'd have thought at that point Moses would go, oh, okay, that sounds good. But no. Moses answered, well, what if they do not believe me or listen to me and say, the Lord didn't appear to you? Then the Lord said to him, what's that in your hand? A staff, he replied. The Lord said, throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground and it became a snake and he ran from it. Then the Lord said to him, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. 
So Moses reached out and took the hold of the snake and turned it back into a staff in his hand. This, said the Lord, is so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Then the Lord said, put your hand inside your cloak. So Moses put his hand inside his cloak and he took it out and the skin was leprous. It had become white as snow. Now put it back into your cloak, he said. So Moses put his hand back into his cloak and when he took it out, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. Then the Lord said, if they do not believe you or pay attention to the first sign, they may believe the second. But if they do not believe these two signs or listen to you, take some water from the Nile and pour it on dry ground. The water you take from the river will become blood on the ground. Moses said to the Lord, pardon your servant, Lord, but I've never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I'm uh, slow of speech and uh, tongue. The Lord said to him, who gave human beings their mouths and who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. But Moses said, pardon your servant, Lord, please send somebody else. Then the Lord's anger burned against Moses and he said, what about your brother, Aaron the Levite? I know he can speak well. He is already on his way to meet you and he will be glad to see you. You shall speak to him and put words in his mouth. I will help both of you speak and will teach you what to do. He will speak to the people for you and it will be as if he were your mouth and as if you were God to him. But take this staff in your hand so that you can perform the signs with it. It would appear at this point that Moses gives up and does what God asks. Then Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, let me return to my own people in Egypt to see if any of them are still alive. He's clearly not that optimistic about what he'll find, is he? Jethro said, go and I wish you well. Now the Lord had said to Moses in Midian, go back to Egypt for all those who wanted to kill you are dead. So Moses took his wife and sons, put them on a donkey and started back to Egypt. And he took a staff, took the staff of God in his hand. The Lord said to Moses, when you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I've given you the power to do. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son and I told you, let my son go so he may worship me. But you have refused to let him go. So I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. It's a bit of a change of direction with the passage here, isn't it? But Zipporah, who was his wife, took a flint knife, cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it. Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me, she said. So the Lord let him alone. At that time, she said, bridegroom of blood, referring to the circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he met Moses at the mountain of God and kissed him. Then Moses told Aaron everything the Lord had said to him, and also about all of the signs he had commanded him to perform. Moses and Aaron brought together all the elders of the Israelites, and Aaron told them everything the Lord had said to Moses. He also performed the signs before the people, and they believed and when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshipped. 
It's quite a long passage, but I can assure you we will be done by about 10.30. Um, sorry, no. Um, I joke, it'll be 9.30. Um, so, let's, let's get going, because this is, a, this is a long passage. So, first point is this. Moses is still making excuses. And when we look at Moses' excuses, we actually see something deeper. They aren't actually excuses from a guy who just doesn't want to do it because he's lazy, for example. They're not excuses from someone who just has better things to do. Sometimes we make excuses that are like that, but actually Moses' excuses are not really motivated by that if we look at them. And actually... When we look at Moses and why he makes his excuses, we see ourselves. And so it's very important that we just zone in very carefully on this. So Moses, first of all, says to God, what if they don't believe me or listen uh, listen to me and say the Lord does not appear to you or did not appear to you? Basically, what if they won't do what you tell them? What if they just call me a liar? What if they won't get behind me on this? I'll go back. I'll look stupid. Why is he questioning that particularly? Well, actually, the first key thing to pick out is because it happened last time. See, let's not forget that Moses has already had a little bit of a go at saving his people. It wasn't in God's strength and it wasn't done the right way. But if we rewind to to Exodus chapter 2, we read about how Moses chooses to side with the Israelite people against his heritage in the Egyptian palace, goes to his true heritage, and he goes out and he watches what's happening to his people. And they're being beaten and abused. They're being forced into labor. And we know this. We actually see Egyptian obelisks with outlines of this happening, of these slaves making bricks. There's one particular one that stands out with a group of, a group of slaves and two, two Egyptian uh, guards with very heavy-looking whips. And this is, this is something that archaeologists have dug up. And so he sees this back in chapter 2, and probably based on his idea that he's grown up in a palace and thinks he can do anything at this point, he wades in and tries to fix it. So he thinks, well, I'm going to start with that guy over there who's beating that guy there. And he, he murders him. And it's the wrong thing to do. It's, a, it's, very much, it's very much a premeditated act. There's no plea of self-defense. But why is Moses doing it? Moses is doing it to try to relieve the Israelites' suffering. Perhaps he's doing it at the wrong time. He's doing it the wrong way. But already Moses actually does have a heart for the Israelites. You know, when we talk about Moses being someone who God found in a desert and was completely unequipped, we're actually doing him a disservice. That's not the case. He actually did. But what he was was a broken and flawed person. And so what had happened? A couple of Israelites appear to have seen Moses commit a murder. And what did they do? Well, what Moses would have expected them to do is keep it under their hat, see his point of view, perhaps go, oh, that Moses, he's got our back. But what do they do? Well, ultimately, they start a rumour that's big enough that it reaches Pharaoh's palace and he has to run for his life. Last time, 
they didn't believe in him. So this time when God is sending him back, what's in his head? They won't believe me again. And in his head, he's not really rationalised the fact that actually he's dealing with God now. That it's different. To him, he's hung up on what happened 40 years ago. And that can be one of our reasons, can't it? For why we don't always step out for God. Because it didn't work last time. The reason it didn't work last time is because we did it without God. But we don't always see the connection, do we? So let's move on to his second excuse in in verse 10. Well, pardon your servant, Lord. I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. Now this one is a little bit different. Because this one is a little bit of a porky, actually. If we read the words of Stephen in Acts, Stephen actually uses his last words to speak about Moses. And one of the things that Stephen tells us is that he was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. And he was powerful in speech. Implication at that point. Moses actually did used to be good with words. Why is he not good with words now? Well, that's, but that's down to the life he's lived. You see, in the words of, of Skip Heitzig, a pastor who's, uh, who once preached through Exodus, bluntly, he's out of practice. He might have a stammer. Some people think he did. He might have partic- maybe a, a defect to his mouth. But actually, there's another option. He spent the last 40 years in a desert in the blazing heat with a herd of sheep. Now, if you've had anything to do with sheep for any length of time, you know they're really not stimulating conversation. (laughs) And so Moses literally is out of practice. He's going, I don't know how to do this. I've spent the last 40 years probably talking to myself and a bunch of sheep, and occasionally my, my wife, and we have the same conversation every night. How was it today? Oh, it was fine. Yeah, we took, I just took the sheep around the desert again. You know, he's not really, for the last 40 years, been prepared for what God's asking him to do. And he's going, well, hang on, God, I don't, I don't feel equipped. My life hasn't set me up for what you're asking me to do. Despite the fact that in, at some point in the past, actually, he has been prepared for it. But what's happened to him most recently is clouding whether he will respond to God's call. And you see, actually, we can be like that as well, can't we? Well, what does, what does God do? He responds again. After the first excuse, he gives all of these different signs to help the Israelites believe. The second excuse, he says to, very simply, who gave human beings mouths? Seriously, Moses, who gave human beings mouths? It was me. Who is it? that chooses if someone is deaf or mute? Who is it that gives them sight or makes them blind? Isn't it me? This is the guy you're talking to and you're saying you've got a problem with speaking and as though I can't do anything about it. On a side note, if you spend some time grappling with verses 11 and 12, it does somewhat build your faith. It's a hard passage, actually, that that short passage. Who makes them deaf or mute? You know, sometimes we 
get caught in the trap of saying, well, God doesn't, God doesn't do things like that. God doesn't set up things like that. Those things, they're just a result of a fallen world. But God suggests that he has far more impact into our lives and into some of the flaws that we have than you would think. Yes, they're a result of a fallen world. Yes, they're a result of everything going bad since Genesis chapter 3. But actually, God allows these things. And he allows them, ultimately, for his glory, so that we can see that he's at work. It's a really, really big deal. Now, Moses, we know, isn't convinced. Lord, please send somebody else. And that's the point where God gets angry. Actually, if there's a point where God is disappointed, it's the point where Moses just goes, I'm not listening. I know I'm out of excuses, but I still want to, I, I'm still not going. I think there's a very simple message here. Don't let the words, please send somebody else, come out of our mouths as God's people. Or don't let them run around in our heads. We can't help what we initially think, but actually we can help what we dwell on. In the words of Martin Luther, you can't stop the birds from flying around your head, but you can stop them from making a nest in your hair. And actually, Moses didn't have to dwell on that point. Moses didn't have to bring that up. And that was actually what disappointed the Lord. So these are his excuses, but there's more to it than that. Because actually, what's God asking Moses to do? He's asking him to go and be his mouthpiece, effectively, to go and be the leader who will almost single-handedly bring his people out of slavery in Egypt. And so there's one big point here, that God can save his people through one person, and albeit that person being flawed. One flawed person is all it takes in the hands of God to save his people. And actually you go, oh, well, well maybe that's just Exodus. But then you go through the Old Testament and you see it's a pattern. In Genesis, there's one patriarch to the family. And let's be honest, they all mess up. Abraham pretended his wife was his sister because he didn't have the guts to say she was his wife. Isaac, at best, could be absenteeist in his fatherhood, in his, in his fathering of his children. He let his two sons fight it out. Jacob. Jacob's very name means deception. You know, Joseph was arrogant to the core at the start of his life. You know, Moses himself, we've seen his flaws. And we see this picture of of one person saving God's people over and over. Joshua leads the people in. Judges, the people mess up. God raises up one flawed human being to fix everything. Time and again, the whole book. I can't go on on that. The point being, one flawed person saved all of God's people in God's hand. You might look at your flaws and go, I can't do anything for God. I cannot be of use. That is not true. You know, we look at the flawed flawed men in the Bible who delivered. Gideon, what was his flaw? He was too weak. Samson, too strong. Paul, had a, thought, had a thorn in his flesh. We don't quite know what it was. We, he, we think it might have been something to do with his eyes, but that's just conjecture, really. 
The point being is God's grace is sufficient for all those people and it's sufficient for you. He will use broken people. Why? Because they're the only type of people wandering this world. You know, you might think, well, actually, last time I tried this, it didn't work. So I'm not going to try it again. Or, now my life really hasn't set me up for what I think God is asking me to do. You know, that you see a space in the, I don't know, the youth work. And nobody's filling in. And you go, maybe I should do something about that. But actually, I've done nothing with kids in my whole life. Actually, God makes up for that with his grace. And that is one of the key points here. But the second major point, and probably the biggest point of this passage, is not necessarily written down in the text. And that is that Moses points us to someone much greater. The Bible's really clear that actually Moses is a type of Christ. That actually Moses, in who he is, points us to Jesus Christ. And we can look at this in the way in which God equips him. What, what does God give him, first of all? Or, or rather, he's, he's got it, but God kind of uses it. He gives him a staff. Why has he got a staff? Because he's a shepherd. You know, his staff is a symbolism of the fact that he is going to shepherd his people from slavery, out from under the Egyptians. And Jesus shepherds his people out from slavery to sin. And as we come to the breaking of bread, this needs to be our thought. That actually, Moses is a picture of Jesus as the good shepherd. If we look at verse 3, verses 2 and 3, the staff, what does he do with it? Throws it on the ground. What does it become? It's a serpent or a snake, depending on your translation. What's Moses' reaction? He runs away from it. You know, there's a, there's a fear of the serpent here. There's a fear that goes much deeper than, oh no, it's a snake. He's probably seen a snake before. But this serpent is a symbol of Satan. And what God is saying here is, I'm giving you this symbol. Here's a snake. Right, Moses, you're going to pick it up by the tail. If you pick a snake up by the tail, most, most types of snake cannot reticulate on themselves. In fact, the ones that can, they have it in the name. Most of them can't. They just have to hang there. They don't have the musculature to pull themselves back up. By picking that snake up, what's he doing? He's making a spectacle out of it. You see, who's behind the abuse of the Jews that he's trying to remove them from? Pharaoh, maybe. But actually, no. It's Satan. Time and again through scripture. Satan uses people to try and destroy the Israelites. Why? Because Jesus is coming. And if Jesus comes, he's finished. And God is saying, well, it doesn't matter what Satan tries. I can pick him up by the tail. And Jesus Christ, when he saw Satan, didn't run. You know, you could ask, what's the similarity between Indiana Jones and Moses? Anyone got that? Doesn't like snakes? Yeah? But that's not Jesus. Jesus does not fear. He doesn't turn away. In Colossians, it tells us that actually he made a spectacle by the cross and the resurrection of the powers of darkness. And that's what we can worship him for. Next one. What's the hand doing then? What's up with the leprosy? Well, in le- particularly leprosy, but all illness in scripture is a result of the curse 
in Genesis chapter 3. And why is that? What's the curse? Well, it's a result of sin. You know, when we look at that, when we look at that, that leprosy, we see something that's broken, don't we? And actually, we see it as a symbol of, of sin, particularly in the New Testament. When Jesus heals someone, at one point he, he says, well, your sins are forgiven. And they go, why are you saying the sins are forgiven? Problem is, the guy can't walk. And Jesus says, well, what's easier to say? Get up and walk or your sins are forgiven. That's the same thing. Now, what I'm not saying is that illness, that physical disability, comes because of any one person's sin. Perhaps it can be a consequence of the way you live your life. But what it is, is it's a symbol of a broken world. And what does God do? Put your hand back in. It comes out clean. What does Jesus do? He washes us clean. And then you've got the blood and the water. Well, what's water in the Bible? We have baptism and we go, oh, that's quite nice. We have Jesus as the living water. But in the Old Testament, water is actually a symbol of judgment. How did God judge the world in Noah's time? He flooded it. And actually, when we see this blood in the water, we see that actually Christ took our judgment. That Christ paid the price for us. He paid the price for our sin so that we might be free. So when we look at Moses, when we read our Bibles, we have to see more. I was challenged the other day by um, uh, the words of of a doctor called Raymond Dillard. He said very simply, the Old Testament, when you read it, should mean something different to what it would mean if you read it in a synagogue. Because we have so much more to it. There's more depth. If I were to preach this simply as, it's okay, God can use your flaws, you might hear that in a synagogue. But actually, we're called to something much greater. Moses himself foretold, there'll be another prophet like me. And nobody was like Moses until Jesus came. Jesus confirmed it. He said this, if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. And then time and time again through the New Testament, Peter says, well, for Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up another prophet like you. Stephen uses some of his last words to tell the Jews, that's, what, that's what's happening. Jesus is the guy Moses talked about. In Hebrews 3, we see him referred to as the greater Moses. Time and again, when we read Moses here, And this could perhaps be a signpost for you through the rest of your series. Look for similarities. I'm not saying that all of them are the same, because they're not. But there are similarities. There are things you can worship God for when we we look at Moses and see Jesus. Three final challenges, because I know we're halfway through, and uh, we're more than halfway through the time. So, moving swiftly on. Moses gives up, goes to his father-in-law. Now, Jethro has been a good father-in-law to him. Uh, Moses saves his, his daughters from, uh, from some bandits. Jethro says, what you, says to the daughters when they get home, what are you doing? Why do you leave that guy who saved you out there? Bring him back. He's a smart father-in-law. And he knows that big, strong Egyptian chaps don't come along for his daughters every day. Brings them back in. You know, at that point, Moses tends his flocks for 40 years. He's been such a good worker, such an asset to Jethro. 
that you would think that when Moses says, well, actually, I'm going back to Egypt pretty much on my own, and I'm going to try and rescue all the slaves in Egypt because God's told me to, he might go, hang on a minute, I've got sheep to tend. I don't want you dying on some fool's errand. The difference is that Jethro is not a selfish father-in-law here. He is a godly father-in-law. We mustn't forget who he is. He's from Midian. You might miss this if you read through very quickly. But what that means is he's descended from Abraham too. Abraham had two wives. After Sarah died, there was Keturah, and they had other children. One of them was called Midian. Jethro knows who the Lord is. And what does he do when Moses says, I'm going to serve the Lord? Go on then, Moses. I wish you well. You know, if you're a father-in-law or a mother-in-law, or just a father or a mother, or you're in a position of, of sort of familial responsibility over someone, and they say, I want to serve the Lord, don't think about the practicalities. But think, actually, if they have been called to this, how can I support? I'm not saying lose your wisdom, lose your, uh, lose your godly wisdom. But actually, what Jethro did was he put to one side all of his kind of, I want Moses, and said, go. And actually after that, he even, you'll find this out in future chapters, comes and supports Moses later on. Moses is at his breaking point. Who turns up? Jethro. Godly wisdom, everything continues on. A warning. Weird passage, isn't it? The bit at the lodging place, God, who's just sent him on this mission, attacks Moses in front of his family and tries to kill him. What? I mean, really? What? You could read that and go, this, and, and just file that away as part of the old, as what in that category, parts of the Old Testament I really don't get. Actually, there's a, there is a reason. You see, there's a challenge here to God's people, and God's pe- particularly leaders of God's people, to take holiness seriously. Why? Why does God attack? It's about circumcision, it says. One of Moses' sons was not circumcised. What that means is, in the Old Testament, he's not set apart for God. You know, one of, one of my friends says that actually the entire Old Testament, if it's teaching you one thing, it's God is holy. And that God loves his holiness and is so zealous for his holiness to the, that he would even attack the man he's just raised up. Because, of, because he's breaching it, because he's failed to see that. Actually, in this particular situation, Zipporah sees the problem. Maybe she's been the problem before. Maybe she's the reason why he hasn't done that. But she is now all in, and she solves the problem this time. And an encouragement to close. However hard Pharaoh beat the Israelites, the more they flourished. We, we hear that actually when Moses and Aaron reached them, it doesn't even say that they, that they wavered. You can, when, we, when we look at the rest of Exodus, you'll find that they flip-flop. Literally, they change their view. They, Moses is great five minutes, five minutes later. This Moses, don't know why he brought us out here. But actually, under the, under the rod of their oppression, 
what should break them and what Satan's trying to use to break them actually means that they believe when Moses turns up. That actually that thing that Moses worried about doesn't happen. Because God has used that moment of that oppression to drive them to him. And actually in our tough times, are we driven to him? Because if we are, we're going to come through them. You look at the church in the New Testament, what's the best thing that happens to it? Well, they're all packed away in Jerusalem and Judea until somebody decides to persecute them. And then where do they go? Everywhere. And suddenly Satan has a bigger problem. When there was a persecution in 1949 in China, you know, the Christians in the West were going, you know, maybe Christianity is going to be obliterated under this communist regime. When the doors started to open, we realized that not only were they preserved, but in 2025, China is probably at the current rate of progress going to be the biggest Christian country in all the world. When we read this, we see a pattern throughout scripture and throughout history that when someone tries to beat down God's people, they grow. You know, actually, these people had had public opinion turn on them. The last pharaohs had thought they were great because the last pharaohs were immigrants. The new pharaohs were isolationists and they didn't think that. In this country, public opinion might be turning against Christianity. What does this passage tell us? Doesn't matter. I'll leave you there. Let's just, let's just pray and ask the Lord to just bless what's been said. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for all of the twists and turns, all of the different scenes. But Lord, if we could pray one thing, it would be that you and your grace and your goodness would give us the privilege of using us despite our flaws. Help us to be holy and set apart for you. Help us to support others as they go out for mission. And help us to remain firm and steadfast in persecution. Lord God, we know that You are sovereign over all. That while things look bad, while things look impossible, you are going ahead, preparing the way, just as you did for Moses. And Lord, therefore, may we never be caught saying, please send someone else. May we look to your son as we go into this time of breaking of bread. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.